Welcome to Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Ridge, and we are so excited to have you join us today. So grab your Bible and then your iPad, a notebook, pens, pencils, whatever it is that will help you get the most out of today's sermon. And please enjoy our Sunday message. I don't have many clear memories of my childhood. I'm one of those people that you ask me questions about how it was when I grew up. I really can't recall. But there is one event that I remember with unfading clarity, and that is the moment I trusted Christ. I was seven years old, and my family was taking an early morning road trip to visit my grandparents' farm in southwestern Ontario. I remember talking to God in the back seat of that quiet vehicle. I told him that I knew there was something in me that he did not like. I told him that I knew that it was my sin that in some way separated me from himself. I told him that I knew that his son Jesus had promised to forgive me, to fix me, to love me, and to keep me. I told him I wanted that, and that I was believing in Jesus for that. I remember that drive. I remember that prayer, and I remember, even at seven years old, the clarity and the certainty with which at that moment I knew I was saved. If you're a Christian, there is a moment in which you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Whether you can remember it with that amount of clarity or not, it's true. You may have been seven, 17, or 70. It may have arrived suddenly or after much, after much consideration and deliberation on your part. Maybe you were praying with a parent or chatting with a friend or listening to a sermon or reading a book. Maybe you were at an evangelistic event, you know, surrounded by people, or maybe you were at home alone by yourself. Whatever the details, for all who belong to Jesus in the present, there was a moment in the past when by God's grace you passed from death to life, from darkness to light, when you who were formerly far off were brought near by the blood of Christ. Praise God for that. That moment that we all experience, whether we can fully remember all the details or not, that is true for all who belong to Jesus now. And this morning, we want to study the Holy Spirit's role in that moment and all the moments leading up to that moment. More specifically, we want to study this morning the work of the Holy Spirit in drawing people to himself and the work of the Holy Spirit in regenerating those same people. How God by his Spirit brings us near and how God by his Spirit makes us new. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And as you make your way there, let me remind us of a few things that the Bible seems to make very, very clear. First, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2. God desires all people to be saved, all to come near to him in a saving way. God tells Ezekiel in the Old Testament very plainly, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, God says. Therefore, repent and live. God wants all to come to him. Repent and experience the life as you come back to me. Peter, in one of his epistles, he agrees. He says, The Lord is not slow about his promise of future coming judgment, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for 
any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The Bible is clear that God desires all to experience the salvation that you and I have experienced. But the Bible also says that left to ourselves, we resist that divine desire. Yes, God wants all to be saved, but in our, in our own natural state, we don't think we need saving. God desires the salvation of all, but all people resist that desire. In Genesis 8, after the floodwaters have gone away, God declares that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Right from the beginning, there's evil in the heart. And so God, we know there that God then sustains this post-flood world that is filled with people who are bent away from him, that are bent away from his goodness, that are bent away from his salvation. As one of Job's friends said, humanity drinks iniquity like water. We just consume it. That's our modus operandi. That's how we operate by ourselves. Isaiah claims all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has gone to his or her own way. See, apart from God, the Bible teaches that we are dead in sin, Genesis 2, Ephesians 2. We are shrouded in darkness and blinded to the light of life, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. So we have these warring truths from Scripture. On one hand, God wants all sinners to be saved, but on the other, all sinners resist that salvation. So we'd say, okay, so now what? Are we at a stalemate? What's going on? God desires all to come to him, and all of us resist that call, and we hate that call. But we know that that's not the end of the story. That when we come to the scriptures, another truth becomes evident, and that's that God comes after us, doesn't he? That we rebel, and yet God comes after us, like a parent after a rebellious teenager. They're not giving up. God comes after us, and this is the drawing work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and draws us to truth. The sovereign, compassionate, saving God pursues sinful, apathetic, and self-righteous people. John chapter 6, starting in verse 41, says this. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, that's Jesus, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? So we see here that these unbelieving Jews, they hate Jesus' claim of having a divine origin. They know his family. They say, we know Joseph, and he ain't from heaven. So how is this guy claiming that he is from heaven? As we keep reading, Jesus explains just how guilty they are in that statement. Verse 43, Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now notice what that text does not say. That text does not say everyone that the Father draws does come to salvation. It says that anyone who does come to salvation must be drawn. Think if you threw a party. You send out invitations. Everyone who will eventually be at that party was drawn by the invitation. They were invited, but there will be people who resist the invitation. We'll get to that more in a bit. There will be people who do not come, do not respond to the invitation, but no one at the party didn't get one. See, God wants all sinners to be saved, but, not all si but all sinners resist that salvation. And so God draws all sinners to himself. He comes after us in this way. See, we need to understand that not one of us would come to God without his persistence and without his initiative. 
If we think forward to heaven, there will not be one person gathered around that throne who was not drawn by the Holy Spirit to that truth. Not one person in this world cracks the God code on their own. Not one person stumbles upon the gospel all by themselves. Not one person independently philosophizes their way to salvation. That's not the way this works. Remember, we are bent away from God. We don't want his salvation. God must come after us. God must draw sinners. And thankfully, all the way through Scripture, that's exactly what he does, doesn't it? He comes after sinners. He works on all people. He pulls all people. He reveals himself to all people. In fact, even in just creation, creation trumpets, trumpets the, the presence and the power of God. Psalm 19 begins this way, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The, the, the creation itself screams at every person, you are not alone. There is something bigger than you out here. And that's from external, but then internal. It says in Ecclesiastes 3, he has set eternity in the human heart, an implanted awareness in every person. So we have this, this calling from outside, and we see creation. Then we have something in us that makes us know that, hang on a second, I am meant for more than just 50, 60, 70 years on this earth. There's something else going on. It's screaming out here. It's screaming in here. God is calling all people, saying, I am real. I'm calling to you. But that's not where it stops. We come to the Old Testament, and God then sends his prophets, doesn't he? He sends his prophets, the truth of the Holy Spirit in their words, and the power of the Holy Spirit in their works. Then he sent his son, Jesus. The true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man, John 1. Jesus himself said, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself, John 12. It's when he was lifted up from the earth that the Holy Spirit descended to the earth to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, John 16. We get the picture. God is coming after us. He is sending. He is sending and coming after rebel sinners. God then sent his apostles into the world. Witnesses who received power when the Holy Spirit came upon them, Acts 1. God sends his word. His word, that which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4. Breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3. And written by men, moved by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter chapter 1. And God sends his church. That's us. He sends us to the lost. And what are we? We are a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered, spirit-united body that goes and testifies of his goodness and heralds a spirit-infused gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Romans chapter 1. I hope you get the picture. We serve a missionary God, a God who goes after people that are resistant to him. He comes after us. He desires all to be saved, and so because we resist that salvation, he must come after us through the drawing work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit convicts sinners, empowers the gospel, sends the church, and speaks through the word. No one can come unless they are drawn. And so the Spirit draws. For a moment, just think back to your story. Maybe you weren't seven on a family road trip, but when you came to know Christ for the first time, Think back beyond that for a moment to the weeks and months and years and even decades leading up to that moment. What did God use to bring you to that time? 
How did he prime the faith pump in your heart, get you ready for that salvific moment? What did he use? Was it a particular conversation? Maybe with a friend? Maybe it was a, a witnessing coworker that just would not leave you alone for year after year after year? Maybe it was a health scare. That happens sometimes, doesn't it? Or a family crisis. Maybe it was a moment of awe. You get away from the city one night and you look up at the sky, you see the expanse and the stars, you just say, wow, I'm so small. Maybe you visited the Grand Canyon and you come to the edge and you say, I'm so small. Maybe that prompts your thinking. Maybe it was a, a pair of loving parents that faithfully just witnessed you over and over again, raised you in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And you look back and say, thank you, Lord, for those parents. Maybe it was a bold sibling. A sibling that came and presented you with truth. Maybe it was a growing unsettledness and a feeling of insignificance. You tried to run away from, from it for a long time, and you accomplished things in this life, right? You, you, you get the degree, you get the job, you get the savings account, you get the car, you get the house, you get the family, and even after all of that, you still say, it's not enough. I'm not scratching that deep itch. I don't even know how to define that deep itch, but it's there, and there's this growing sense of unsettledness. Or maybe it was an intellectual obstacle you just could not solve. Maybe it was a believing spouse. It was just faithful, faithful, faithful to you, even when you were less than that. Maybe it was a clear sermon, a convicting track, a faithful Sunday school teacher, a, a foreboding sense of fear. Or almost certainly, it was a combination of many things, wasn't it? You think back over those years and you say, I don't know if it would be fair to parse out the percentage by which all of these things coalesced into bringing me to that moment. I don't know. I think it was all of these things, more than one of the above, right? But two things we know for sure as we sit here this morning, two things we know for sure as we look back over those years, those months that led us to that decision, as we look back, we know two things. One, the Holy Spirit was at work. That's the Holy Spirit's job. He is drawing us to truth. And he is using people and times and experiences and all of those things and, and bringing them together to draw us to truth. The second thing we know is that we are thankful, aren't we? Whatever the cocktail he used to bring me to that, that place and time, thank you, God. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for drawing me to yourself. Thank you that you come after sinners like us, straying sheep, those drinking iniquity like water. Thank you that you come after us. Thank you, God, that your spirit draws all people. And yet, not all people are saved. God draws all people. The Holy Spirit works on people and draws all people, and yet not everyone is saved, which tells us that as wonderful and as essential as the drawing ministry of the Holy Spirit is, it's not enough for salvation. The drawing ministry is not enough for salvation. So now turn back to John 3. Just a couple of pages in your Bible. It's probably the part of your Bible that's bent and well-trodden, right? Some stains on that page. We've read this a number of times, John chapter 3, a well-known text. And so we can move through this fairly quickly this morning. There is another work of the Holy Spirit that sits atop his work of drawing, and that is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. To regenerate is to make something new again, to vivify, to, to restore. It means to bring life where there was death, to bring flourishing where there was decay. And the Holy Spirit must do that in our hearts to bring us to salvation, must make us new. Verse 1 of chapter 3 of John. 
Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Right away, we notice a difference between chapter 6, the Jews in chapter 6, who, who rejected his divine origin. Here, Nicodemus admits it. We know you've come from God. And how does he know? Because of the things Jesus is doing. No one can do the things that Jesus is doing unless he is from God. But, but Nicodemus, he is a, a ruling Pharisee. He's part of the Sanhedrin. He's respectable. And some of the questions he still has, I guess they're a little bit embarrassing. And so he comes to Jesus by night, hoping to get some answers. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. No small talk. Jesus goes right to the point, right to the heart of the issue. If anyone wants to see the kingdom, he says, if anyone wants to be in the presence of God forever, delivered from sins cursed, they must experience a new birth. They must be born again from above. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Apparently Nicodemus was old and was concerned by this teaching. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again, can he? And be born again? No. So he's thinking materially. I can't go back into my mom, right? Jesus answers in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus again here points to the necessity of a second divinely provided birth. And we just say, why is that important? Why does there have to be this second birth from above, from the Spirit? Why is that important? Well, he explains as we keep reading. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Just like the wind, we don't see where it's going. We don't know where it's coming from, but we see its effects, right? So too with the Holy Spirit. We can't see him, but we see the effects. In this context, it's being born again. We can't see what he does. Here's the point. Oak trees make more oak trees. Eagles make more eagles, kangaroos make more kangaroos, and sinners make more sinners. We cannot create in and ourselves as sinners, we cannot create holy people any more than we can make ourselves holy. We create after our own kind. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit create? More Holy Spirits. Lowercase h, lowercase s. Is that not what we are? We are set apart. Our spirit is set apart unto God. So we need to be born again. If we continue to be born again of flesh, like Nicodemus is confused about, we will only perpetuate sinful people. There must be another birth, a holy birth. The Holy Spirit makes holy spirits. God comes along and says, Be holy, people, for I am holy. But from our first birth, it produced a lot of unholiness, didn't it? We are sinners by nature and by choice, and we cannot make ourselves perfect as much as we want to think we can. But a second birth, a birth from a holy source, that can get the job done. It can bring holiness. It can bring life. It can bring regeneration by the Holy Spirit. We keep reading here in verse 9. Nicodemus, still confused, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. 
and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is very clear. Nicodemus, you should know these things. You're the teacher of Israel. You know the scriptures, the Old Testament. These, these concepts of, of new birth and the Holy Spirit are in the Old Testament. You should know these things. But Nicodemus wasn't quite getting these heavenly truths, these lofty realities, even though Jesus was presenting them in, in an earthly way. We, we would say a down-to-earth way. He's relating it to birth. Everyone can understand that. But Nicodemus wasn't connecting the dots, even though he had the best teacher, didn't he? I mean, Jesus is an eyewitness to these things. He says, I ascended. I'm the one who's been there, and I'm telling you these things. How are you not getting this? But just because Nicodemus doesn't get it doesn't mean it's not true. And we say, as we go through John's gospel, we actually see Nicodemus coming around. Obviously, this conversation, it was the Holy Spirit drawing him. We come to chapter 7, and we, we see Nicodemus talking. It seems like he's softening to the idea. And by the time we come to John 19, Nicodemus is anointing Jesus' body for burial. But he's having trouble here in chapter 3. He's having trouble wrapping his mind around this idea of new birth wrought by the Holy Spirit from above, and it's necessity. He can't quite get his head around it. The drawing ministry of the Holy Spirit, though, is crucial, but it isn't enough for salvation, we've seen. God draws all people to himself, but not all people are born again. There must be a new birth from a holy source. There must be regeneration. The Holy Spirit must make us new, and that's exactly what he does, doesn't he? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We are new. We are vivified. We are made alive by the Holy Spirit, born from above. All this passage in Titus chapter 3 as well. Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 4, says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind, his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Get those deeds out of here. It's not by works. We can't scrape our way toward holiness. It's not because of that. But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, when new birth comes, we get a new nature, we get a new life, and we get a new family. We are brought into the family of God, all in a moment. Back to John 3, and Jesus' initial response in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the next logical question would be, okay, how do we get it? You know, the Holy Spirit has drawn us to the precipice, but I want that new birth, right? I know that the drawing's not enough. How do I get to that new birth? What, what does it take? How do I apply that to my life? Well, we find out as we keep reading. John 3, starting in verse 14. Jesus continuing to speak with Nicodemus, this confused Pharisee. Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the servant, serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. You see, being born again brings about eternal life. It's that it's that perfect life that he gives to us by the Spirit. Now, here in those two verses, Jesus is referencing Numbers chapter 21. And some of you know this scene well. This is a scene where Israel, in their rebellion against God, they're being disciplined by God. And God sends serpents into the camp. 
and these are poisonous serpents that bite people, and people are dying in Israel. And so God says to Moses, make a serpent, a snake out of bronze, and put it up on a, a pole and lift it up in the middle of the camp so that any of my people who look to that serpent will be healed from the poison of the snakes. And Jesus here is taking that scene, and he's saying in the same way the Son of Man himself, Jesus, in the same way he would be lifted up over a dying people. A people with the poison of sin coursing through their veins. They are dead men, dead women walking is what they are. But the, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up above so that all who look to him, all who believe in him, all who trust in him are given the antidote to death, are given an antidote to that sin. They will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It's not the invitation to a party that makes us party people. It's the acceptance of that invitation. And so too with salvation. The Holy Spirit draws all, inviting all to salvation, but that invitation must be accepted by belief in the Son of God. That's how we experience the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. He draws us, but we must throw ourselves on his mercy and believe in him. You know, as crazy as it sounds, and to me it does sound crazy, but back in Numbers 21, there were people who were bitten by the snake who refused to look to the statue. No, I'm not going to look. No, I like my poison. I like my death. And they refused to turn their eyes to the provision God had made, and they died. And so too today, there are people who refuse to look to the crucified Christ. Refuse. And it's not because they don't know. It's not because they've not been drawn. They refuse to throw themselves on his mercy. They are drawn, but they resist and scorn and ignore the drawing and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Some people say that's not possible, that you cannot resist the drawing work of the Holy Spirit. That's not true. The scriptures are very clear that we can. In fact, it's all over here. In Matthew chapter 23, for example, Jesus laments this, speaking to Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Remember, that's the drawing ministry of the Holy Spirit. He sent his prophets. But you scorned them, you killed them. And Jesus continues, How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling, he says. I wanted you to come, but you were unwilling. Similarly, in John chapter 5, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You're unwilling. You fast forward to Stephen. He's looking into the eyes of the people who are carrying rocks and stepping toward him, about to bludgeon him to death for his testimony of Christ. They're about to stone him to death. He's about to become a martyr. And what does Stephen say? He looks at them and he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. They are resisting the drawing ministry of the Holy Spirit. As it's often said, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Well, let's be honest. God could make us drink, but he doesn't. He puts us to a choice. He draws us and says, you have 
to choose. The Holy Spirit draws all to the water and wants all to drink and live, but not all do. But the Bible closes with a beautiful plea. It says in Revelation 22, verse 17, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. It's right there. You've been drawn to the water. Take a drink and live. But everyone has a choice to make. Being drawn to the water of life does not save. Being on the shore of the water does not save. Being this close does not save. Until one places their faith in Jesus, until we look to the sun lifted up on the cross, until we drink the water of life by faith and are born again from above, we are still dead. If you've never made that choice, I would just say, why? Well, I know why. It's pride. I know exactly why it is. It's pride. You're hearing my voice today because the Holy Spirit is drawing you. That's what's happening. And I don't know how long he's been dry, uh, uh, drawing you. It could have been for a while. This could be the cherry on top. He is drawing you because the Holy Spirit is coming after you. He brought you to the water, but you have to drink. As most of us here have done, you have to throw yourself on his mercy, believing that Jesus is who he said he is, the Son of God, and did what the Scriptures claim he did. He died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. And he offers eternal life to all who believe him for it. Believe it. Be made new by the Spirit of God. Be saved. That's what it takes. There's no amount of effort. There's no amount of of intellectualizing this process. It is throwing yourself on his mercy in faith. Now, for the rest of us, we've done that, right? So I pray that as we study the work of the Holy Spirit, and particularly the drawing ministry of the Holy Spirit, and the regenerating work of the Spirit, my prayer is that it has filled us with three things this morning. It's filled us with a renewed sense of urgency, a renewed sense of thanksgiving, and a renewed sense of awe of our God. First, urgency. As we learned last week, the Holy Spirit's a person, and he's drawing people. Do we pray with urgency for his work on the people that are far from him? We have people in our families that are far from him, resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. Do we call out to the Holy Spirit and say, Go after them, Holy Spirit. Do not let them go. Please, we are begging you. Assault them, pull them, convict them, show them. Please don't give up. We appeal to the Holy Spirit with urgency and say, draw them to that precipice, please. Remember, he's a person who draws, who has drawn us and does draw others. And so we need to pray with urgency for his drawing work. We think of what's going to start happening here tomorrow morning. VBS. We're going to have 80 90 kids, 50 volunteers in this building hearing the gospel message day after day after day. Holy Spirit, draw those hearts to yourself. May they hear something that they need to hear. May it affirm what their parents are saying at home. May it affirm what they're hearing at their church, whatever the case may be. We don't know exactly how you put it together, Holy Spirit. We just want you to draw them to yourself, please, with urgency. See, we can't argue people into heaven. I think we know that, but sometimes we act like it's true. If we just had the the right argument or the right apologetic, oh, then they would get it, right? No. We're not throwing out those, those conversations. We should have a reason for the hope that we have, but at the same time, if we are not appealing to the Spirit, Lord, you've got to be involved in this. You have to draw people, then it's all moot. There should be a sense of urgency in us as God's people. Second, I trust that we are filled anew with a humble thanksgiving. 
While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came after us. He led us to the water, a water that he himself provided. He made the water and brought us to this water. In a way, he broke us. He guided us. And when we believed, he made us new creatures, the old having passed away, new things having come. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for giving me new birth, a new nature, a new life, a new family. I deserve none of this. In fact, left to myself, I was trying to run the other way, and you came after me. Why me? Do you ever wonder that? Do you think back on your conversion, on your salvation, the grace God has shown you? Do you ever just, in your more sober moments, sit down and just think, why me, God? What is man that you would be mindful of us? You know, as the the psalmist says, why me? Thank you. My only response is humble thanksgiving. Thank you for being a God who pursues straying sheep. Finally, I hope that we are filled with awe. We serve an awesome God. A God that we will spend eternity exploring and learning of. He's awesome. He's truly awesome. Our God is so gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, even for rebels like us. He deserves all worship and praise now and forevermore. This week, I I encourage you, if you don't make a practice of it, think back to your conversion. Think back to the moment you trusted Christ, and think back even further than that to the weeks and months and years leading up to that moment, and use it for fodder for worship. Say, Lord, you are so kind. You are so awesome. How you work, how majestic are your ways bringing me to that point. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You are awesome. He is worthy of it all. Worship and praise now and forevermore, and he will get it. We serve an awesome God, a Holy Spirit who draws us. He's a person and a Holy Spirit that makes us new. Everlasting life, now and forevermore. Let's praise and worship him now in prayer and in song. Please bow with me. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more sermons, blogs, and other resources, you can check out our website, oakridgebiblechapel.org. To listen to our weekly podcast, Word Processing, you can go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting platform. Remember, you can always join us in person or on our live stream at 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Thanks for watching.